For years now, the American Jewish community has operated under the assumption that Jewish-Christian relations are strong and Christian support for Israel is stronger than ever. But a key question arises, are those assumptions still true? Joining us to share his views on the state of Christian relations with Jews in Israel and the state of Christians living in the Middle East, Robert Nicholson, President and Executive Director of the Philos Project. Don't push pause, you're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. Welcome back to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, we uh, talked a lot last time. Uh, I'm talked out a little bit, uh, but I look forward to debating you, my friend, uh, in future episodes. I do want to get to our guest uh, who is waiting for us right now because I think it's a very special topic that we haven't really dug into uh, that much uh, here. I think we talked a little bit about Jewish-Christian relations with Yehuda Kurtzer uh, a few episodes back, uh, but I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Can I just say, as a parenthetical, Rich, I got an A in the history of the New Testament when I was a freshman at Johns Hopkins University because I was failing out of calculus and I was able to get into that class late in the semester. Um, so if there's ever if there are any uh, scripture questions, I think I should be able to answer them. I took two college courses, I believe, in Christianity. So combined, we are probably still not qualified to be interviewed on this topic. However, <laughs> however, Robert Nicholson, who is the president and executive director of the Philos Project and is co-founder and board member of Passages Israel, an advisory board member of In Defense of Christians and an adjunct professor at the King's College in New York City, he is. He holds a BA in Hebrew Studies from Binghamton University and a JD and MA in Middle Eastern History. History from Syracuse, a former U.S. Marine, you're never a former U.S. Marine, and Tikva fellow, Robert founded Philos in 2014 to stimulate a new generation of religious and cultural exchange between the Near East and the West. His written work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Telegraph, New York Post, Jerusalem Post, Newsweek, Providence, First Things, The Hill, and National Interest. Robert is also banned for life from visiting Lebanon. Robert, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, my favorite part of your bio, Robert, is that you're banned from Lebanon for life. It's the kind of thing you would put like over your bathroom. Banned from <laughs> Lebanon for life. I'm, what did, I'm, what did I mean, you I would do? put that on a t-shirt, Rich. I would put that on a t-shirt and wear it around. Bumper sticker, bumper sticker, man. Sadly, <laughs> there's a whole market for that. There, I'm not the only person banned from Lebanon, but but I am indeed banned for life, in fact. For I life. Was, what did you do? I Well, according to... Uh, the, the Hezbollah newspaper, I've, I've been fraternizing with, with sort of known uh, Zionist figures, Israelis. I, I have some big plan to, to overthrow the country, uh, which was news to me. But they, uh, I landed there, I don't know, this was a few years ago. They detained me. I was locked away in their little jail cell in the back of the airport with a bunch of Syrians and Bangladeshis for about 12 hours. Uh, very nerve-wracking 12 hours. And, and then they finally... Uh, let me go and told me to get on the first flight out and uh, haven't been back since. What happened to the Bangladeshis? They're That's still the there. Question. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. I, I tell you what I pity. There was a whole Syrian family in the, in this back room and it was, it was disgusting this, this room. And I'm thinking, I thought that thought as I left, what is going to happen to those people? I have no idea. 
Well, if they were looking for the people plotting to overthrow Lebanon, they should have looked more like around you know, that country called Iran. That's uh, that's sort of where it yeah. happened. Interesting. Well, you have a project you're working on now called Abraham's Missing Child, uh, trying to get Middle Eastern-based Christians uh, a seat at the table in what's really been, I would say, a Muslim-Jewish conversation, at least perception-wise for us, when we think about the Abraham Accords. Tell us a little bit about the project. Yeah, so uh, part of our work at the Philos Project is trying to to build a community of Christian leaders from different backgrounds, denominations, to understand better and engage better on Near East or Middle East issues. Big part of that is Israel, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but the other big part, as you can probably guess, is the plight of these Christian communities, all of which go back, you know, 2,000 years and uh, there's been a lot of advocacy for these communities over the last few years, especially since ISIS. But unfortunately, very little in terms of impact. In fact, you know, if there was a graph of these populations over time, it's just been declining um, and, and even more rapidly in recent years. So you kind of have to take a step back as an advocate and say, well, well what are we doing wrong here and what can we do better? And I think one of the problems has been it's been a lot of, uh, you know, should, ought, values, morals, why the United States should take the lead in defending these Christian communities. And we, we just have to be honest with ourselves, even if the American people care about this issue, it is never going to be a top foreign policy, policy priority for any administration, Republican or Democrat. Even Trump, who, who arguably did the most on this front, didn't actually do that much. And so I wrote an article uh, last February in which I said, you know, the region's changing. Uh, for the first time, at least in my lifetime, good things are happening. There's actually a positive story to tell. The Abraham Accords, the East Med Gas Forum, you're seeing political reforms in KSA and other places. So what would it look like if we kind of seized on that momentum rather than come in with this, you know, separate ask of the U.S. foreign policy establishment, U.S. government, and tried to hitch our wagon uh, to that momentum, right? To that, to that energy, and and you know, Muslims, Jews, great, but you know, as the title suggests, there, there's one missing child here, and, and arguably these indigenous Christians need it more than anyone. So we've launched a whole project based on that op-ed, and that's that's what that's the initiative. Robert, so so zooming out for a second, because many of our listeners may not really understand the nuance about. Christian communities throughout the Middle East. What's the situation like in these communities? Are they persecuted? Are they living openly? Are they somewhere in between? And how does it vary across the region? Like where? Yeah, where are you operating? Who? What's the difference? You know? Yeah. So, so where are we operating? It's primarily in kind of the the core of the Near East, Middle East. We're we're not really doing anything um, in in South Asia. We're not doing anything in kind of farther farther west africa or sub-saharan africa it's it's egypt lebanon syria iraq jordan that whole sort of area the situations do vary by country uh the populations are rather small egypt has the largest population in terms of raw numbers nobody quite knows exactly how much something like eight million uh, Lebanon historically has had the highest percentage of Christians, however, and Lebanon has been kind of the closest thing to a, a Christian country in the region insofar as its president has to be a Christian by law. But, but even in Lebanon, uh, because of, as you mentioned, Rich, the, the Iranian occupation, um, even that Christian community is being squeezed out. So what you find is that Christians have the technical right to worship, right? You can go to mass on, on Sunday morning, most of these places. 
but the the cultural environment and, and certainly the political environment is set up in such a way to either exclude you or even to target you. Uh, and it's not always uh, the governments. You know, for example, in Egypt, President Sisi has been trying to do a lot more on this front. He himself has, has recognized the problem. But, you know, at the level of, of culture and at the level of religion, you know, you have in some of these cities and towns of Egypt, you just have people who are more extreme in their religion. So they're, you know, it's very hard to to protect these communities when a kind of a spontaneous mob takes it upon themselves to, to burn down a, a Christian business or something like that. So you have, you know, the, the big stuff like ISIS, which forced many Christians out of the region. Then you have this kind of slow boil that's taking place in Lebanon, Egypt, some of these other places. And the, and the Christians are just leaving, right? They're going to Europe, they're going to the US, Canada, Australia. And so, you know, how do you stop the flow? That's really the big question that we've been asking. And what are their viewpoints on Israel specifically in these communities? Do they differ from the larger populations um, that might be more hostile towards Israel, might have carry some historical bias, uh, biases against against Israel? Do, do they share that or are they different because of their Christian background? And I think sort of a related question I would have is, does the risk of speaking out in any way positively on Abraham Accords just, you know, with the threats you just talked about, just compound that even further? So you have a couple of things coming together, right? There is a traditional historical you know, Christian anti-Semitism that is pervasive in some of these communities. But I, I would dare say that it's actually never quite gotten to the same level as it did in Europe, largely because the Christians in this part of the region never really had political power, right? So even if they, you know, had some whatever theological feelings, they didn't take it as far as say, you know, the Holy Roman Empire or something like that. But it's there. You do find it. Uh, you know, Jews killed God sort of thing. Um, you also find that, especially from the 20th century on, many of these Christians, in an effort to uh, achieve equality in society, uh, adopted the sort of standard Arabist narrative, right, which is largely premised on the, the rejection of opposition to the state of Israel, right? And, and what happened to Christians in this region is actually not all that different from what happened to Jews under socialism and communism in Europe, right, in the 19th and 20th century, where society was finally open. There was a way to be equal with your Christian neighbors, or in this case, your Muslim neighbors, but it required you to sort of strip yourself of any uniqueness, any individuality. And in some cases, you even became more uh, anti-religious than, than, than uh, you know, your, your neighbors. And so you find some of that, but, you know, the, the bad news, the good news is that the, the Arab nationalist discourse is basically bankrupt, Right. There's really not a whole lot of that still in the region. So a lot of a lot of Christians, especially in the younger generations, you know, Coptic Christians, Assyrian Christians, Lebanese Christians are, are realizing that 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 didn't work. Right. There is a new uh, there's a need for something new. And what you find is that a lot of them in private and this goes to your question, Rich, a lot of them in private are extremely interested in kind of, you know, quote unquote, what the Jews did, because many of them naturally as, as ethno-religious communities see themselves as, as kind of similar to the Jews. Now, I don't think there, there, there are many that are advocating for building new countries and all of that, but they understand that there's some kind of commonality, uh, at least in terms of practice. And, and in some cases, many people recognize there's some kind of deeper value, this sort of Judeo-Christian thing that links them, but, but it's incredibly 
uh, dangerous and difficult for anyone to talk about that. Now, the Abraham Accords, in some ways, have given many Christians, I guess you can call cover, right? If 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 Muslims around the region in large numbers are are agreeing to disagree with the Jews and to to live side by side, share the region, it's big enough for both of us. Well, well, why not the Christians? So I think that's really what's different about this moment is that Christians feel that there's space, right? It isn't it isn't like a definite accusation of treason to suggest the fact that Jews, Christians, and Muslims can can kind of live in the same region without killing each other. And that that's the momentum that we're trying to seize upon here. Uh, Robert, we asked you a minute ago about being banned for life from Lebanon. Tell us what's going on there, and do we think things are getting better, getting worse, or getting the same? I think we've seen some positive sim- signs lately, but are they going to hold? Uh, and so just break it down for us a little bit. Well, that's a that's a big question. Let me let me try to take a stab at it. We we do follow it quite closely. We have a few people on staff, either living there or you know working on that. People from that country. Um, it is, there is, there is not a lot of good news. There has been a little bit of good news, uh, in the recent election. It seems that Hezbollah didn't do as well as everyone hoped. I think most Christians, uh, in the country, historically, they made up something like 30% of the country. It's probably lower than that. Now, most of them, uh, realize by now that Iran Hezbollah is, is bad, is bad for them. Right. And, and it needs to be, overcome. The problem uh, for the Christian community is that you still have a group of Christians um, led by Michelle Owen who are providing cover for the Iranians, right? And, and until he's gone um, and that narrative is completely debunked, there, there's still going to be this false appearance of, you know, Christian Muslim partnership and, and all of that, which is really just a smokescreen for what's actually going on. Um, the the other problem is that there aren't, there isn't real leadership in the Christian community, and and maybe the best example is the Beirut explosion. Right, people took to the streets, people were unhappy. Christians, Shiites, Sunnis, Druze, everybody was in the streets, everybody was upset. It was a key moment in some case, in some ways, like a perfect opportunity for someone to step up and tell a new story. Right, to to get past the old, uh, just this old narrative that that the Christians have been working with, but there was no one, right? It was just mobs in the street without a leader. And that moment, unfortunately, kind of passed. So you look at the Christian community today, you talk to Christians and you say to them, you know, who's the leader you respect? The universal answer you're going to get is no one, right? I remember I was in uh, Lebanon a couple of years ago, I asked, I had a driver, I said, well, what about you? Who, who you know, who do, who do you like? Who's a, who's, a, who's a politician you respect? He told me, Ariel Sharon uh, said, "Well, I, I don't, I don't know that he's he's able, he's available for comment, but uh, so so that's a big, that's a huge problem. And in the meantime, the numbers are going down, the economy, as you know, is in shambles. And so now, you know, we've been talking about, and not just us, but lots of people who care about this issue, you know, moving from kind of Plan A to Plan B." Right. Plan A is working within the system, trying to, you know, kind of box out Hezbollah to, to do a better job of of improving society, not just for Christians, but for everyone by pushing out the Iranians. But, you know, it's it's not working. Right. Who's going to disarm Hezbollah in the end? The Christians can't do it. Um, is the U.S. going to do it? Is France going to do it? It's not clear that anyone is willing to do it. And, and that probably means that Hezbollah will basically run the country into the ground. 
um, and, uh, and and just sort of take over outright. And so plan B is asking ourselves, okay, in such a scenario, uh, you know, how do you salvage uh, what's best? How do you protect as much as possible? Uh, and there are all kinds of options in in that uh, front. It becomes very complicated. There's the whole internal debate about federalism and decentralization and partition and and all these things. I you know I don't go too deep into it, but we're at we're at that moment now where people are starting to ask, okay, so so what comes next in a worst case scenario? And, it, and it's terrible that it's come to that, but that's the reality. Just to zoom back out into the region a little bit in the Abraham Accords discussion, I know that the diaspora Christian communities from some of these countries uh, are quite active, quite vocal. Um, they have been vibrant communities here. We think of the Assyrian Christian community in the United States and their relationships back home in northern Iraq and uh, Syria. Uh, we think of the Lebanese American community, uh, uh, heavily Christian uh, members of Congress, et cetera, uh, in the past. Uh, we think like the La Hoods, uh, a very famous family. Um, to what extent do you work with these diaspora communities or are these diaspora sort of in touch with their relatives back home? to understand the openings and advise them or work with them? And is there a way for American Christians to sort of contribute to this effort in some way? That's a big part of, of what we do. And, I, and I'm very proud to say that any advocacy that we do on behalf of any one of these communities, and you mentioned a few there, Rich, is is really a reflection of our you know conversations with them, right? It's like, what do you want us to talk about? A lot of Groups that do this work just go out and, and advocate, right, and call for various things. And we've always made it a point to go to the Assyrians in Chicago, you know, or, or wherever, and to ask them, you know, what what's what are your priorities right now? The problem is that there's a big disconnect between the diaspora communities um, and between the homeland, mainly, uh, you know, manifesting as diaspora being extremely aggressive and the people inside these countries being extremely uh, reticent, you know, reluctant to speak out because it's, it's, it looks different when you're on the ground in northern Iraq than it does from Skokie. Right. So we um, that's a big challenge. Another big challenge, an increasingly uh, problematic one is the divide within the diaspora. So the same cultural rift that's been tearing America apart has been tearing these um, diaspora communities apart. I mean, the, the Assyrian community is a great example. Right. So you have one side that is, is a little bit older very Trumpy, you know, walking around with with America, make America great hats and speaking Aramaic like, you know, at the local stores in in Chicago or in Turlock. And then you have people who tend to be on the younger end who are Black Lives Matter. Right. And, and linking their cause to the Palestinians and, to, you know, the whole intersectional movement has really taken over, not just the Assyrians, but the Armenians, the Copts. And it has become kind of an internal war, uh, you know, between the two sides for kind of the future of the movement. Like, who are we going to affiliate with? You have some people talking about being pro-American and, you know, pro-Israel, and you have the others who are exactly the opposite. So it's very hard for us. We can't adjudicate these disputes, but they come up all the time. And it's really uh, it's, it's hard as you know, it's hard to watch because these communities, they could not be weaker and, and more irrelevant from the perspective of world affairs. And yet they're torn apart, right, even in their weakness into into smaller and smaller factions. So we've we've tried to bring people together um, to, to find sort of consensus issues. 
But at a certain point, it's it's on these communities to lead, you know, in a way that only they can. Right. I can't lead the Assyrians. It's not going to happen. So tell us about the Christian community inside of the Palestinian territories and particularly in the Palestinian Authority, uh, how that works, how that affects the conversation. Clearly, it's been in the news um, in the last couple of weeks. But uh, where where are the differences between Christian factions of the Palestinian movement uh, and Muslim factions? Where do they agree? Where do they disagree? Tell us a little more about that. It's it's a great topic. We, we did, I think, the most comprehensive poll on this uh, community with a Palestinian pollster, Khalil Shikaki, um, just a couple of years ago, trying to answer the question, why are they all leaving, which they are. Now, you have to remember, Christians are 1% of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, meaning 99% are Muslims, 1% are Christians. The numbers in Israel proper are actually about the same. So these people are a super minority. Right. And, and they don't have the luxury of 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 influence. Right. The, a big part of being a Christian in this part of the world is just keeping your head down. Um, interestingly, uh, because of Arab nationalism and, and Palestinian nationalism in particular, Christians have actually punched above their weight inside, uh, you know, kind of the, the national movement trying to be you know, more Catholic than the Pope, you could say, in terms of, you know, demonstrating their Palestinian bona fides. So you find, you know, there's a reason why a lot of churches in the U.S. Uh, go hard on on boycott, divestment and sanctions. And it's it's largely because of one or two or three Palestinian Christian activists who've linked up with those denominations and really sold them on on the Palestinian cause day to day in the street among the you know 40 45,000 Palestinians living in the West Bank and Gaza uh, when polled about you know their their issues like what is it that that makes you leave while you know the Israeli occupation and, and all of that you know figure obviously rather large the biggest reason is really an economic reason right these these people have just been forced out of the economy they a lot of them say something like one out of two say that they feel there's discrimination religious discrimination in in private employment um, in the meantime tourism you know since the second intifada has has just plummeted in places like Bethlehem and so a lot of them because you know because of these push factors and also because of the pull factors usually having a larger number of family abroad than their Muslim neighbors, usually being more fluent in foreign languages, they 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 tend to leave. Um, so, or as Bill Clinton said, it's the economy, stupid. <laughs> it's it's a big it's a big big part of it, and I and I actually think that's a, a microcosm of Christian communities around the region. There are a lot of political solutions that need to come, but first of all, these people want to know two things: that they can make ends meet, and that their kids are going to get a good education. That's what all of them. Want. It's one, one last point on that, though. One of the dilemmas that I often point out about these Christians is that on one hand, when polled about, you know, desired forms of governance, uh, certainly within the Palestinian Authority, democracy is, is number one by far. Right. They want they want democratic governance. At the same time, when you ask them, you know, do you fear a Hamas takeover of the West Bank, the numbers shoot through the roof. So on one hand, they want democracy. They want good governance. On the other hand, they have no choice but to support Mahmoud Abbas and Fatah Party and Palestinian Authority because they know that when Palestinians go to the polls, especially these days, they're going to get the very thing that will actually make things twice as bad. 
So what do you do? You're caught between this and that. You you keep your head down. You try to you try to you know keep your business going and just hope that things uh, take a turn. Uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot of hope these days that that they will. Robert, you are the president and founder of the Feedless Project. Maybe for our listeners, we take a step back for a moment. Tell us about Feedless. What is it? What does it do? Uh, how does it differentiate from other organizations that are out there that our listeners may be familiar with? Uh, it is a uh, 501c3 nonprofit based in New York City. I founded it in 2014. Uh, the mission is to promote positive Christian engagement in the Near East. Uh, a big part of that engagement is reconnecting Christians from the West to this region by virtue of their spiritual, cultural, historical connections to Jerusalem, to the Jewish people, and therefore to the Jewish state. But one of the things that's been important in our uh, messaging, if you will, from the beginning is to tell a bigger story, to tell a regional story. We found that you know, many there are many Christians, evangelicals and otherwise, who, who love Israel and, and advocate for Israel. And then there's a totally different group that advocates for these these Christian communities in the region. Then there's another completely different group that talks about Christian Muslim relations um, and, and rarely do these things ever feature in the same in the same room. So we've been trying to tell that bigger story and to say, you know, the name Philos means friend in Greek. And uh, while many people are thinking about this region in terms of enemies, and that's, of course, an important way to think about it, it's also important to recognize that there are lots of like-minded friends, right? And, and they may be Christians, they may be Jews, they may be Muslims, but they share a basic package of values that offer an opportunity for us to engage the region in a very different kind of way. Now, remember, 2014 was years before the Abraham Accord. So for a long time, this was this was theory, right, that there was a way for different kinds of people to learn to to get along. And, and with the Abraham Accords, I think we've seen that that concept has been proven. Um, and, and so we're trying to seize on it. Now, in terms of programming, um, a big part of what we do is try to identify recruit, train, develop future leaders, and with particular emphasis on young people, on people in minority communities, Latinos, African-Americans, Arab Christians, um, and to put them through a series of programs. Some of them feature trips. Some of them are more seminar-based that allow them to get into, call it the space, right? And it's not just politics and policy. It's journalism. It's church ministry. It's humanitarian work. Any Christians who are going to go into work that touches on this region, we want to come through the Philos program because we think we have a certain worldview that is uh, that is that is powerful and, and constructive. In addition to that, we bring um, current leaders, uh, whether they're institutional leaders, thought leaders uh, from from within kind of the greater Christian world on uh, fact finding trips, uh, largely to Israel and the Palestinian territories. We've done them to. Uh, Egypt and, and Jordan as well. Um, in, in a couple of weeks, we'll be in the UAE uh, meeting with with people there related to this project that we talked about. Um, and then beyond that, we do a lot of, uh, you can call it content or publications and, and thought leadership. We've published a number of books related to theology, uh, related to Christians and Jews. We've done a lot of, um, uh, you know, uh, pub just writing, speaking, things like that, trying to change the way uh, all of these things are talked about and really trying to take it to a new generation, right? There's there's an old kind of Christian conversation about all of these topics um, that 
for many younger Christians is, is something of a turnoff. And so we've been trying to to really to go a lot deeper, make the conversation richer, wider. You know, it's not just evangelicals. It's it's also Catholics. It's also Orthodox. There's a there's a big tent approach at the Philos Project that I think distinguishes us from from some other people, both in terms of the the, the audience that we're serving and the issues that we're focused on. And you are also a co-founder of Passages, uh, which uh, our viewers, our listeners should be familiar with. Maybe they're not. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about uh, Passages, what that is, and, and why you founded it. Right. So it's it's one thing to talk about Israel. It's another thing to go there. I don't think that's a, a profound statement. Anybody who's been there knows what I'm talking about. And yet, unlike the Jewish community, which has done a great job uh, of getting young Jews uh, over to their you know, their, their birthplace in a way uh, through programs like Birthright. Uh, the Christian community, notwithstanding its, its huge size and, and much larger resources, has actually never even tried it. And so I wrote an article back in 2013 in which I said, you know, we need to think about bringing young Christians on these pilgrimages that combine both the, the ancient or the biblical side of this as well as the, the modern side. Um, and we need to do it at volume. And, and why doesn't such a program exist? Uh, within a few years, we we found the resources. We built a whole system and created this program called uh, Passages. And Passages brings Christian college students, whether they go to Christian colleges or, or secular colleges, on uh, transformational nine-day trips to to Israel, in which they see the you know the religious stuff where where Jesus walked and, and all of that. Um, but also see what's happening today. They're meeting. They're meeting Israeli Jews. They're meeting Israeli uh, Arabs, Christians, Muslims, and trying to really wrap their heads around uh, what's happening. Not only um, kind of for their own self edification, but uh, to to think about you know how they can play a role. And after they come back from the trip, there are a number of alumni programs that allow them to come back again. Sometimes not just once, but twice, three times with uh, kind of escalating levels of leadership. So they come back and they're a leader on a bus. They can come back a second time and they'll be a leader of a, of a pod of four buses, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's a whole host of uh, content and videos and, and things that we put these people through to uh, kind of develop their, their knowledge further and then hopefully plug them in kind of into this, into this world. So we've taken, I think we, our first bus, you know, real, real group when in 2016, we've taken about 8,000 uh, Christian college students. Wow. Um, and this year, we're going to be a little under 2,000. Next year, we're going to be back toward 3,000, which is where we were before COVID. And um, the plan Christian is- Christian to, birthright. Christian yeah, birthright. Christian birthright. Christian birthright. Christian birthright is the idea. So Robert, let me ask a basic question. Yeah. How did a non-Jewish Marine end up being a Tikva fellow and end up running these organizations? Well, it wasn't it wasn't planned, that's for sure. Um, it was all by accident. You know, I have these young people sometimes come up to me on our programs, and they'll say, you know, tell me tell me exactly what you did. I want to I want to do the same thing, and I tell them, don't do what I did because the chances <laughs> were that I was going to be, you know, trying slip and fall cases in upstate New York. That was really the path that I was on. Um, it was largely the product, not to get too in the weeds here, but of kind of my own personal journey. You know, I, I've told the story before. Some people have, have heard me talk about it, but it boils down to the fact that I kind of grew up in a, in a Christian environment, re rejected it, thought it was, 
you know, religion was just kind of for dummies and uh, kind of came full circle through a series of events I won't recount here and kind of rediscovered or, or reimagined Christianity um, by seeing it historically and, and kind of understanding where it came from. You know, when you grow up in, I grew up in upstate New York, it's like, you know, my mother's Christian. It's just a, it's a thing, right? It's this American thing and it seems very narrow-minded and, and simplistic. And then you kind of zoom out and you realize, wow, this is not a Western religion. This is a, this is a Near Eastern religion. It's a Hebraic, you know, uh, sect in a way or, or heresy, depending on who, who, you know, who you're talking to. But it was that kind of insight and then me asking myself, you know, well, well, what does that mean for today? Like, what does that 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 aspect of Christianity mean for my engagement in a, in America's engagement with the region? You know, realizing that the you know politics is downstream of culture, and culture largely is downstream of religion, or at least some kind of religious or or mythological sensibility. Uh, and realizing that America, why is America so into Israel? It's because of the the American people, right? It's not some secret cabal of Jews that that convinced them to do that. It's because they feel this profound sense of kinship that no one can exactly explain, but it comes out of this, comes out of the Hebrew Bible, right? Which is something these two communities both share. So really, once I discovered that, I realized, wow, there is incredible power in this, in this, uh, you know, this realization. Like, how do I how do I capture it? How do I, I channel it and, and do more with it? And this is, of course, all you know, taking place against the backdrop of against of American engagement in the region that didn't go so well, right? In in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and trying to think about like how can we do better? And one thing led to another. I learned learned some Hebrew and uh, kind of deepened my ties in the Jewish community, and uh, found myself in a position to actually do something about it and be entrepreneurial. And that's really what I've been doing ever since is kind of trying to start things to to take that basic recipe and you know make make uh, make a meal for for a new generation. Tell us about the state of Christian support for Israel in America today. What's the what's the trend line? Where does it vary? Um, this is not something that, you know, we all hear about it in the Jewish community, but we'd like to hear it from somebody who's an expert. Uh, and so wonder if you could kind of tell us about that. And, and I would just add, Jared, I, I do feel myself, you know, for people who have worked in Washington for the last 20 years, I think it's become almost like a given we have Christian support for Israel. And I don't know that it is a given, right? Because I think there are changes. And you're talking about the younger generations in some of these communities. You know, what what is happening beneath the surface right now? So historically, I'll say what I just said again, which is that, um, you know, America has been exceptionally, you know, objectively more pro-Israel than any other country because of this unique form of American Protestant evangelical Christianity, which is is really, you know, to make it very simple, is extremely biblical, right? It's it's very immersed in the biblical texts. And whether you're talking about the, you know, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, or the New Testament, all of this was written by, you know, Jews of one kind or another. So the more you're steeped in this book or series of books, the more kind of Hebraic or Judaic uh, one's thinking becomes. It's it's inadvertent, right? And and of course you're reading along the way all these all these prophecies from thousands of years ago about Jews coming back from the four corners of the world. So it's it's only you know logical that these people will come to support the idea that Jews will come back and, and live in their homeland. 
But as you say, things things are changing. There, there are a lot of different reasons for it. Some of it is just generational change. No one wants to be like mom and dad, right? They're into that. I'm, I'm into the other thing. Uh, some of it is is related to social media. People, young people, are just exposed to more, right? Think of what happened just recently with Shireen Abuakle, right? Fifty years ago, it, nobody would have even known about it, right? Nowadays, because of the ubiquity of media, of images, of narratives, people who otherwise would never have heard of it are, are now hearing of it and asking themselves, wow, maybe I'm on the wrong side of this issue. You have a, a small group of Palestinian Christians who are you know, really working hard trying to you know, undermine Christian Zionism, which is their, their boogeyman. You know, believing the formula that, you know, the Israeli occupation persists because of America, America's support for Israel persists because of evangelical Zionists. Therefore, if you dismantle the evangelical Zionism, you, you can sort of solve everything else downstream. And then you have, you know, just the splits that are taking place in America right now, right? Of course, people, young people who are pulled toward the left have all kinds of uh reasons for disengaging with Israel. But even among young people on the right, you find one group of people who say, you know, we shouldn't be involved in politics at all. You know, we haven't supported, you know, very good things abroad, especially in the Middle East, uh, as far as I can remember. So maybe we're maybe America's supporting the wrong side of this conflict. Maybe Jesus would just love Palestinians and, and love Arabs and, and not get involved in all this. And then you have people who are coming from a more sort of America first perspective and saying, look, we shouldn't be doing anything over there, right? Not just for like moral reasons, but for, for American reasons, right? Strategic reasons, political reasons. We got our own problems. It's, and there, there's a growing number of these people who are, who are arguing on, you know, conservative grounds that America should disengage with Israel, not not to attack Israel, but just to sort of distance it uh, from from all the things that are happening over there. Israel's grown up now. They can take care of their own stuff. Not our problem. And so when you look at the trend lines, I mean, one very obvious indicator is the white evangelical Protestant indicator, historically the most by far pro-Israel segment of the American population, which just for reasons related to demographic shift is is becoming an increasingly small part of the American uh, population, right? I mean, every election cycle, that number goes down and down and down and down. Um, I think the X factor these days, um, and probably the only reason for hope, if you, if you want to call it that, is the American Hispanic community. You know, you have large numbers of Hispanics uh, who are becoming uh, who are already rather traditional and conservative in their religious sensibilities. And you have a large number of those becoming evangelical, not only in this country, but throughout the Western Hemisphere. And historically, with evangelicalism comes some kind of you know, affinity for the Jewish people and, and often the Jewish state. And I think that as Latinos go on this question, and probably on so many other questions, so too will go American Christianity in, in the country as a whole. When we look back at history, Robert, it's, it's so fascinating because I agree with you. The history of America is ingrained, and obviously Michael Orr and others have, have written books on this on this topic. Is ingrained with this just you know biblical inspired support for for Jews for for aspirations to to build a land in Israel, et cetera. But we go back centuries, right? I mean. 
it's it's not a very friendly history in, in many regards. You're talking about some historical uh, lingering Christian anti-Semitism in some of these Middle East communities. We recall the Crusades. Some of our listeners are wrapping up an annual mourning period with customs that, that originate uh, during the Crusade period. What, what has changed in the nature of Christian-Jewish relations that has allowed anti-Semitism to evolve into philo-Semitism? Well, part of it goes all the way back to the Reformation, right? What, what did the Protestants do? What was their big protest that made them Protestants? They felt that the church had gotten off track and that the authority, the church hierarchy, had made a lot of mistakes and that rather than, than sort of accept those mistakes, a, a reforms were needed, right? The, this is where the Reformation came from. And, and rather than trust human authority, the church hierarchy, they went back to the Bible. And it was that that biblicism that that came out of the Protestant Reformation that that changed so much of this. And, and I already spoke about that. I think um, in addition to that, which has now bled beyond the Protestant community, I should add, there is what happened in the 20th century, right? You had you had large numbers of Christians well into the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, not only in Europe, but also in this country, who were anti-Semitic uh, kind of by by definition, right? They believed all of the Christian stuff, and they had imbibed a lot of the the racial stuff that came out of uh, the kind of the you know the, the scientific movements of the early part of the twentieth century, and were 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 very keen on either throwing the Jews out or or seeing the Jews, uh, you know, crushed in one form or another. And of course, the Holocaust and, and the shock of it. I think took many Christians by surprise. Uh, the less reflective uh, dismissed it as something that was, uh, you know, Hitler's problem. He wasn't a Christian. He, you know, he was actually anti-Christian. But I think the more reflective realized that Hitler himself ha- came out of a certain environment. It had been it had, that had been forged by this uh, Christian uh, anti-Semitism, and and that that realization prompted a lot of self-reflection. Uh, the Catholic Church. Uh, was kind of the leader in this regard, coming out in the 1960s with this document Nostra Aetate um, at the Second Vatican Council, and you know being the largest Christian sect in the world, even though lots of other Christian sects uh, have have nothing to do with the Roman Catholic Church. I think the fact that the, the Roman Catholic Church took this position and engaged in this kind of introspection sent sent kind of a shockwave. Uh, around the world that coupled with this latent Protestant biblical philo-Semitism really took all of this uh, to the next level. And of course, the founding of the state of Israel. In the beginning, Israel was a, was a small and beleaguered uh, little state of survivors surrounded by all these enemies. And there was a certain kind of general sympathy uh, that that came about in many Christian communities on top of all these other things that made them root for the underdog. Uh, to the extent that Israel has now become much more powerful, has become, in fact, the regional hegemon, uh, I think some of that support has been uh, eroded. Right, as Christians look at Israel and say, "Well, you know, they're they're actually they're actually really strong," and vis-a-vis the Palestinians, they're 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 too strong. Right, in the case of some Christians, but the philo-Semitism is a, is a combination of these different streams. Um, that kind of came together at a unique moment in the mid-20th century. Now that we've gotten your take uh, on anti-Semitism and Christianity and, and, and all that, we're going to shift gears to what we call the lightning round. 
And the lightning okay. round is where we ask you a series of questions just to get a little bit of a better sense of who you are uh, and your likes and dislikes. I promise there are no wrong answers. Um, so the first question we have is... You're also allowed to swear if it's your Yeah, choice, you're allowed to you swear. Okay. Not in English. Not, not in English, English, right. Foreign languages so, are so, so okay. your favorite Hebrew or Yiddish or Arabic word or expression... Oh, wow. Um, this is where the swearing sometimes yeah, happens. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, okay, yeah, now I understand. Yeah. I actually, no, I, I won't swear. I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian, man. Come on. Good, good. There we go. There we go. <laughs> it was a trick question. It was a trap. It was a trap. You're a Christian, but you're a Marine, so. That's oh, true. Whoa, a lot of swearing. Whoa. A lot of Shots swearing. fired. Shots fired. I would say, uh, <laughs> you know, I, nothing, you know, speaks to Israel's reality than the word complexity. So, you know. I call misubach. You know, everything's complicated. I love the word misubach. I think I just like the way it sounds. Um, but there's also like the phrase in Israel, ein brera, ein brera, like speaks to me to the reality of what it means to live in Israel. I think a lot of people in the West think of Israel for, you know, for better or for worse in these kind of utopian terms. And for Israelis, you know, seen, the, seen through Israeli eyes, the world is just a world that leaves not a lot of options, right? And so I think that's, I, lo I love the Israeli character and i think that phrase really kind of speaks to it um what was it was that the was that the question that yeah. was the question yeah, that's now, now, great right, i'm gonna have another one uh okay. favorite favorite character in the hebrew bible so i love the prophets i love prophets they're like the jedis of the bible you know what i mean they have these like crazy powers and they're just walking around just you know calling everyone on the mat or whatever so now elijah eliyahu of course, how can you not like him? But I actually, I'm a big fan of his successor, Elisha, who had the chutzpah to say to him, you know, at the moment before he was taken up to heaven, when Elijah asked him, all right, so like, what can I do for you? He's like, actually, I want double what you have. And <laughs> Elijah's like, okay, well, I hope you get that. And sure enough, he does and, and proceeds like over the course of the next few chapters, just to be a general pain in everyone's neck. Like he's just, he's an amazing character the stuff that this guy Alicia did. So I would say it's tough. That's a tough one, but I'm going to, I'm going to go with Alicia today. You should do this like Friday night icebreakers for like Shabbat meals. This is like yeah. a classic question. If you were a character yeah. in the Bible, who would you who be? Who would you be? Who would you be? Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Favorite place that you've ever visited in Eretz Yisrael? Oh, that's a tough one. I would say, so I, I actually, it's not tough because I always say it. So my favorite part of Israel uh, is the extreme North right on the border with Lebanon, the upper Galilee. There's a little town there called Jish or Gush Chalav, a uh, small town, most largely Maronite. It's now mixed Christian Muslim, um, but uh, a place, it's kind of my Camp David uh, up there. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's a part of Israel. Very few people ever see. It's, it's like organically connected to Lebanon and I think serves as like a a transmission belt culturally between the one country and the other. And it's just freaking gorgeous up there. You know, it's, you can't, you can't beat it quiet off the beaten path. It's, I love Jish. Great place. Robert Nicholson. Thanks so much for joining the podcast. Good luck to you. Thank you guys. Thank you. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Yeah.